Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from San Francisco, California. Welcome to the show, Matthew Ryan. Thank you, Victor. It's a pleasure being here. Well, great to have you here. Now, Matthew, you've been at this game a little while, and we're going to talk about a new product class that's not very well known in the industry right now. But before we do, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Yes, I started in 2010 in construction, specifically the growing industry of energy efficiency and green building implementation. It was a very niche industry that was supposed to kind of boom, you know, in a post-recession world as part of the clean tech uh, initiatives through the Obama administration. I cut my teeth through the residential subcontracting world and bought my first duplex in 2013 and ended up moving out to San Francisco, liquidating some of the you know the house that I had bought in addition on a short sale, fixed up, ended up selling the foreclosed duplex. And through my interaction with a local community member there in Charlotte, in addition to those investments, the light bulb kind of went off for me. And I said, you know, I think I want to take this knowledge and expertise that I've, that I've acquired over the last five to six years and double down and uh, felt a little bit destined to be a developer. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was kind of the short story for me. Fantastic. Well, there's no prescribed career path to get into this business. I mean, I know so many developers that have approached it from completely different vantage points. I mean, heck, I came into this business from microprocessor design. It's not a prescribed career path at all. So definitely not. That's fantastic. Thank you. So today, uh, you are focused on co-living as a product. Now, if you go way back, there were rooming houses, and those are certainly not a product class that people really want. And what you're building is certainly not a rooming house. In fact, even lenders don't want that kind of a product. They, they really don't like to lend against that product. How is this product positioned? Yeah, it's positioned, you know, very much taking advantage of what's been happening over the course of the last two to three decades where individuals are moving into major metros. And instead of renting a studio or a one bedroom, Maybe they're getting a two, a three, a four, or even a five-bedroom apartment. And then they're turning around and subleasing that to friends. They do that in the effort to bring down their rent. Here in San Francisco, a studio peak recession uh, was right around $3,000. So you know, if you could get a two-bedroom $4,500, now you're looking at a significant discount. A three-bedroom around $6,000, even more of a discount, right? The problem was it was creating a fairly inefficient marketplace, one that I was familiar with whenever I moved to San Francisco, trying to find roommates, trying to find a place to live, wanting to take advantage of that discount rate. You're doing awkward interviews with roommates. These are people you don't know. How are you going to furnish it? How are you going to split utilities? Um, I ended up doing a blind roommate situation and it worked out fairly well, but there was altercations around payment structure and how things you know got split up uh, and who's what. And co-living operators in Europe have been hip to this model for over, I think, two decades now. And so the U.S. hopped on board and there's been some very sophisticated developers in addition to operators or fancy term for property managers who have moved into the market, Common being one of those. They just announced the other day that they're merging with a major European operator. So you're seeing kind of the onset of this industry that's bringing a level of efficiency and a little bit less friction for those who are trying to obtain affordable housing in cities, specifically those kind of 22 to 35 professionals. Is this as simple as overlaying a set of governance rules on an existing property? Or are you talking about developing purpose-built products specifically for co-living arrangements? 
Yeah, we were focused very much on small scale Victorians that we could convert to 10 to kind of 12, 20 bedrooms initially. And we thought that would be a good, call it missing middle product type that we could deliver rapidly, 18 to 20 months, escape the conundrum of large scale development, which sometimes, especially in the Bay Area, can take, God, three to five years, right? Doing that at scale, we thought we could deliver product. The issue that we ran into was trying to find that existing product type is very challenging. Of course, once you start running up against building departments and planning departments and zoning reviews, you're still delivering product in a shorter time frame. But as you know, in the capital markets, it kind of rewards scale. So we weren't we were really difficult having a difficult time finding product and being able to reach a level of scale rather quickly. So the short answer to that question is, is that yes, the most successful developers right now are doing at an institutional, sub-institutional development level. And that's ultimately where we're going as well. We still like being in neighborhoods. That That's kind of the general thesis of Revive is to find that up and coming neighborhood and deliver a lot of products specifically within that neighborhood. So we're still trying to focus on smaller scale developments. But yeah, purpose-built is really the future for co-living. And you're seeing that all the way down to the micro apartment. And then of course, there's this other nomenclature, affordable by design. It's essentially just the same for co-living micro-development. So yeah, it's it, that's that's kind of the way of the future for what I see for co-living because trying to adapt existing product type is just a little too challenging. So in a co-living arrangement, there's certain things that lend themselves to being shared. Obviously, a living room, things like that, front entrance, that's all shared. Everyone wants to have their own bathroom. What other things apart from that are you focused on in, in designing something that's really purpose-built for this market? Yeah, most of it's going to be around what you mentioned, trying to get as many ensuite baths as possible. That seems to be the way the product type is moving, where most people are getting individual bathrooms. So if you have a four-bedroom unit that you're building out for co-living, a lot of developers are putting three and a half, four baths in there. That's kind of the key for a lot of developers. For us, we're still trying to blend a split bath because for someone, a service worker, someone on a tighter budget, that extra $150 a month that they would pay, it's just maybe out of the side of their affordability range. And that's really what we're trying to be focused on is this kind of affordable quote by design, allowing people from different income thresholds to still be able to benefit from community amenities and being close to these job producing cores. Nice kitchens, washer dryers, the convenience, you know, the conveniences of call it a class A product, but you're just sharing those amenities versus having them all to your own, right? And you're obviously getting a considerable discount for it. Cleaning, that's all taken care of, wrapped into utilities. We try to make a lot of that stuff, like I said, very turnkey and frictionless for individuals, playing flat fees. And then and on top of that, a lot of the great operators that I've seen are pushing in community events, catered lunches, catered uh, dinners, other types of like networking events, maybe bringing in local artists and musicians, anything that they can do to continue to build out this sense of community because you're you're sharing you know these amenities and sharing these things with people oftentimes you can create a lot of friction so without those social events where people can really create those bonds outside of just living to one you know living with one another that's where you're seeing more and more operators come in and offer those benefits and i think it really helps with retention and in addition to like i said just kind of reducing friction amongst people who are sharing a space another major piece if one of the goals is affordability is making sure that the location is transit oriented. So for example, if you look at a map of virtually any city, uh, you can plot the value of the property as a function of distance from the closest bus stop, closest subway stop, and so on. 
How have you selected the locations for these properties and is transit oriented even a factor? 100%. I mean, our, our location in Denver that we're opening is two blocks away from a transit stop. I don't know the transit ridership in Denver. I imagine it's kind of low right now, but we look to the future. The other thing that we're looking at is part of our core business model when we're looking at quote up and coming neighborhoods, areas that are revitalizing is what are the plans for infrastructure? The particular market, the West Colfax market in Denver that we're involved in, they have a vision plan you know, mapped out for the next three to five years where they've not only created a transit line that's close to this neighborhood, but they also have a massive overhaul plan to reduce the overall core orientation or priority of vehicles in the in the Colfax corridor, in addition to creating bike infrastructure. Denver has a great bike culture, very much like San Francisco. And so it's not just the transit-oriented buses and trains, but also are we creating it to where they're prioritizing people and even bicycles over vehicles in some instances, and doing that as a means of also mitigating some of the risk associated with pedestrians and the commingling with cars. And so to that, yeah, we're 100% involved in that, but also looking to kind of that, what we believe the secondary measure, call it the new urbanism approach to development. And, and we're very, very excited about the markets that we pick because we look at that foresight of, hey, what do they have planned for the next five to 10 years? And more importantly, what is the city government's ability to deliver on those promises? You mentioned Denver, the last time I was there, not that long ago. I remember driving through rush hour traffic, seeing the light rail go by and looking through the windows and being shocked to see that I could see right through to the other side of the train in most of the cars. The ridership was shockingly low, uh, even during rush hour. How is that influencing what you do? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that we can't get to that level of molecular detail, right? Ridership is ridership. I, I kind of stand in what I think you inferred in the earlier comment is that transit-oriented developments or even assets that are located to those tend to have a higher level of appreciation, a lower level of vacancy, and a higher level of demand over the long term. And we'll continue to see that. You know, I, I think people as a culture, we really have to create a massive shift and we really have to make the total infrastructure, not just the transit stop. But how how easy it is it to, to walk there? How easy is it to bike there? Are there scooters close by? We call it the last mile delivery of transportation. And I still think we're maybe a dec- decade or so off in some of those secondary markets who have just put the infrastructure in place. Charlotte's a great market that I moved from. I was the only one <laughs> that I felt like rode my bike, hopped on the train, took it two stops to the downtown. I was an early adopter, you know, I mean, and I think it's just going to take time for people to understand the convenience and it has to be convenient. It has to be fast. It has to be a better option than sitting in a car. To me, that's just going to take time. Absolutely. Whenever we talk about development, there's always the question of scale in the sense that where is the sweet spot? Are you looking at uh, strictly infill projects? Are you looking at greenfield projects, land assemblies? Have you discovered where the sweet spot is for you in terms of how many units to build at one time? Yeah, that you know that's a great question. And it's one that I think a lot of people in the co-living universe, especially the early people, myself included, have kicked mold over a lot. At what point in size does a co-living property not feel like it has a sense of community anymore? And is it just an apartment people sharing space? And I think that's a tough one. You know, I, I think the I, I personally, our thesis was the 10 to 50 units and then spacing those out from a format perspective. 
I mean, I still think you can you can have a very productive co-living development if it's 80, 70 or 80 units, but you're seeing a lot of traditional developers integrate one bedroom, two bedrooms, studios into that mixed use model. So someone who's maybe tired of roommates and wants to get their own apartment can literally just move a floor or two down, right? Versus trying to have to move across the city. And I think that's conducive as far as looking at a product type that people can move move across the spectrum until they move into the home buyer market. And I think that's really important. Going back to your question about the type of development site, we're gritty, scrappy. Like I've done a lot of small scale development, historical landmark. I mean, we've kind of done it all. In order to reach a level of scale, a lot of our developmental focus is, I think, going to be JV partnerships and entitled sites or close to entitled sites. The problem there is, is like how many entitled sites are really going to be conducive to co-living, right? So I think we're going to be buffering up against a little. But for us, we really want to get product on the ground to deliver to this 45 million of Gen Zs over the next decade that are going to be looking for this type of housing. And so it is kind of a race to the finish. Um, I think for us, that's where the JVs are going to make a lot more sense for us, where maybe someone's in the process of entitling or has acquired an assemblage. The developer's looking for a way to maximize their profitability, and we can bring a co-living. You saw a lot of operators, you know, the property management companies who were doing massive scale, common included, doing that, where they're just partnering with developers saying, hey, you know, you can get a 75 to 100 basis points premium by integrating this co-living model. Let us show you how. Can we have three to four to five floors of this and integrate that into your development model? And I think developers were very, very open to that pre-COVID. And then everyone got a little trepidatious. So I think you're going to see that pick back up again. I think it was Graystar or someone that was just mentioned in the common habit uh, merger in the Wall Street Journal article about they they have now formed a co-living brand. So at this point, it's off to the races, man. I mean, this is this market's going to be huge. And and so it's I think it's you're going to see a lot of developers moving in. Very interesting. Well, Matthew, if folks want to connect if they want to learn more. What's the best way? Yeah, just go to our website, re-viv.com. Uh, there's links for there. Where you can schedule time to talk to me about the product or investment offerings that we have up there. All of our investment offerings that are currently open are on there as well. And that's usually the best way. Fabulous. Well, Matt, I love the perspective and love what you're doing. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Matthew Ryan at Revive. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.